Welcome to the blog of the Journal of the History of Ideas and our forum, Mediums of History, where we unpack the various methods, goals, and audiences of history, diving into why historians choose different vehicles for conveying their research. I'm Sarah Pickman, a PhD candidate at Yale University, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Robinson, professor of history at the University of Hartford. Professor Robinson is a historian of science whose work focuses on the history of exploration and its role in science and culture. His first book, The Coldest Crucible, Arctic Exploration and American Culture from 2006 from the University of Chicago Press, examined American exploration of the Arctic at the height of its popularity in American culture from about 1850 to 1910. This book won the Book Award from the Forum for the History of Science in America in 2008. His most recent book, The Lost White Tribe, Explorers, Scientists, and the Theory that Changed a Continent, from 2016 from Harvard University Press, explored the history of the Hamitic Hypothesis, a theory of human origins and migrations linked to European imperial ambitions in Africa, as well as to scientific racism. The Lost White Tribe follows Western explorers, anthropologists, and archaeologists through the 19th century and into the 20th on their quest to identify supposed lost white tribes that would prove this deeply racist theory of human ancestry and migration. In 2019, this book was awarded the Davis Prize by the History of Science Society, which honors books written for a broad audience. Professor Robinson has also written widely on the history of exploration, history of the field sciences, extreme environments, and other topics in academic journals, in public-facing publications, and on his blog, Time to Eat the Dogs. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Robinson about history and podcasting, and specifically his podcast, Time to Eat the Dogs, which launched from his blog of the same name in the fall of 2017. On the podcast, he interviews a wide range of scholars, including graduate students all the way to senior professors, as well as journalists, writers, artists, scientists, and travelers, about their work on a variety of fascinating topics related broadly to the history of science and exploration. The podcast has been running regularly for more than two years now, and has reached more than 100 original episodes. Michael Robinson, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Since we're talking about mediums for conveying history, I thought we'd start out by talking about the Time to Eat the Dogs blog first, which you've been maintaining for more than a decade now, if if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's and, right. I started oh. it in 2008, I think. And this was the platform that you launched the podcast from. So can you talk a little bit about your decision first to start this kind of public-facing blog about the history of exploration and then to move from that into a podcast? I started Time to Eat the Dogs as a blog in 2008. I had just finished um, publishing The Coldest Crucible as a book, and that grew out of my dissertation. And the reason that I started a blog at the time was that I worked so long on my dissertation, I think it was about eight years, well, uh, six years, and then through the publication process. And at the end of that, the it was, it was very satisfying to see it come out as a book, and I got uh, mostly positive reviews, but there wasn't a lot of conversation about it. And I think, you know, none of, none of us really are, or very few of us are actually in this business to make money with our academic books. But I do feel that we care a lot about these projects enough to devote years on it, and we want it to be a part of a conversation. And I thought that blog writing might be a way to do what I wanted to do, which is to talk to people about exploration, because there are so many people interested in it, you know, anthropologists, literary studies and, and cultural studies people, uh, museum people, members of the general public. And so the blog was an attempt to reach broader audiences and hopefully actually start a conversation so that either through comments or through guest posts or working with other blogs that uh, we could talk about exploration in new ways. And I seem to remember uh, in a previous conversation we've had that you described how there was a kind of moment in academia where it seemed like the way to do some, something like what you're describing to have a bit more of a public-facing conversation was to start a blog. But then there seemed to be a moment when that shifted to podcasts. Am I remembering that correctly? 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's so interesting to see the kind of publishing history of the internet because you look at stuff in the like the Wayback Machine or the Internet Archive from the you know the aughts or from the late '90s, and you find web pages that have massive amounts of text on them. You know, kind of like you could say early blog writing. And when blogs came out, they were seen as really short form, you know, and these, I mean, my posts were maybe a thousand words long. I would like do these short essays on things, which for me was really a challenge because I'd never written in such small chunks. And now, you know, by today's standard, that's massive. Like who's going to sit around and read a thousand words of a blog? Uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. There are a lot of people who will, but right. you know what I mean. Right. That's considered long form now in terms of the internet. And so when I started out, that was a really radical shift for me as a writer to think about ideas in, you know, in such small chunks. But it was actually quite liberating too, because I felt that the demands upon, let's say, writing a post were very different from writing a journal essay. I didn't have to be an expert in the same way. It's just that I would have to kind of treat it almost more as an op-ed piece than it would be a um, you know something that I was an expert in. So I found blog writing really exciting at first because it was um, a way to challenge myself as a writer to write more openly and broadly for different audiences, as well as to write more succinctly than I was used to writing. And also get used to the idea that the way that you would cite people on a blog would feel a lot different from the way you would do it in a journal article. And so I really enjoyed that process. I learned a lot from it, and I got to meet a lot of people virtually, at least through the blog. I did find that it was difficult, and I think this was true for a lot of academic bloggers in the 90s and in the early aughts, that in the process of doing that, it's a lot of work. And not only is it a lot of work, it's a lot of work of, of stuff that we're already doing, which is we're writing, I mean, constantly writing. Except this is like, you know, you're writing every week and you have to come up with new content every week. And so I found it actually quite tiring after a while. And I felt it as a lot of pressure and very difficult for me as a writer to start working on, let's say, new research pieces as I was also blogging about other subjects. I just found it really hard to keep my concentration in both things. So I would say by 2013, 2014, my, my output in terms of blogging started to decline. And that, 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 I think that happened with a lot of academic bloggers at the time. And then I think sim simultaneous to that, there were changes in media. So you see the rise of Twitter, the rise of podcasting as new media of exchange. And so I think that also started to take place. And do you remember your thought process when you personally decided to launch the Time to Eat the Dogs podcast? Was there anything specific that precipitated that or had it been bubbling under the surface for a while? It took me about two years from the time I first started thinking about it to actually beginning the podcast in, I think it was November of 2017. And the reason that it took me so long was I was a bit intimidated by the technical aspects of the project. I'd never done any audio work, and I was really concerned that if I did it, it would sound at least, it would be something I wouldn't be embarrassed about uh, in terms of kind of the audio quality of it, as well as it would be sustainable, that I wanted to do it in a way that I could follow through on it, you know, whether that was as a monthly show or a bi-weekly show or a weekly show. So that was kind of the thought process behind, uh, it took me about two years to figure out how to do it. But the reason I did it was that I had, I had realized about myself that increasingly I was listening to podcasts and really enjoying them. And that a bigger percentage of the information that I took in was from podcasts. And I really liked the medium a lot. It was something that I could, I could multitask. I could be driving and listening. I could be making dinner and listening. And so... I think that was what initially initially drew me to podcasting as a medium. And then as I got into it, there were other things that that kind of sustained me in it. So one of the things I really liked about podcasting relative to blogging was that as a blogger, I'm, you know, sitting in my office and I'm trying to come up with something new and I'm I'm trying to say something original and whereas in a Whereas in a podcast, I'm, I don't have to be the expert. I'm 
I'm talking to somebody else and they, they are supposed to know what they're doing, not me. So I, my, the knowledge that I need to bring to it every week is I need to be able to ask coherent questions and questions that hopefully express their work in an interesting and hopefully fairly comprehensive way. So the, I felt like there was less pressure in a way. I still had to do work, but I had to do less intellectual work than I had to do with blogging. And the second thing I really liked about it was that I got to meet these people and uh, I became really a kind of collaborator with them for a short period of time and that we were both working together on a project. So they have uh, some original work or they've gone on a trip and they're interested in talking about that. And I'm interested in kind of directing that material to the world. So we would work together not only in the interview process, but also, let's say, afterwards in terms of promoting it on social media, keeping in touch. The people would send me links to their work as well as photographs. And I really like that pro- process of actually meeting people and learning about, learning about their stuff. That's, that's great. There's a few points in there that I want to come back to later. But for the moment, I wanted to ask if when you were getting started – if there were other history podcasts that you listened to and look to for inspiration, or if there were other history podcasts that you listened to and felt that this was something that you completely wanted to avoid, how did, how did the community of podcasts <laughs> at the time kind of inform those choices for your own podcast? Oh, wow. So, so yeah, at the time, I think the pod, it's hard for me to pull back all of them, but I think at the time, the podcast that I was listening to, I was listening to the New Books Network under um, Marshall Poe. And for people, for your listeners who may not know what that is, it's a pretty great idea. As new books come out, there are other scholars, usually in the same field, who read the book and then do an author interview. And they tend to be long format. They're about an hour long. And they really are a kind of a deep dive into the work of a book. So for people who don't have time to read the book or who want to get a sense of whether they want to buy the book, it's fantastic because you can really get a sense after an hour what this person is motivated by and what their project is and and what are the basic arguments. So I did listen to podcasts on the New Books Network, mostly their history channels. So I would say that would be the major history podcast that I was listening to as a kind of guide. And the other podcasts I was listening to were I I love um, Fresh Air by Terry Gross and um, which is a you know a radio broadcast out of Philadelphia on public radio and that also became available as a podcast early on so I listened to that a lot oh you know I really also loved the um, uh, what was called Serial so it's an amazing investigative podcast that would go kind of season by season. I can't remember how many episodes for the first season, but uh, was really both a piece of amazing investigative reporting, but also of production and storytelling. Like that blew me away that someone could fashion a investigative report that was that long, that would be so addictive to listen to and so well produced. So I think I started listening a little differently to these different um, podcasts and I think one of the things I I realized was I wanted to tell something that had some of the heft of of the New Books Network, where I was actually going to get into the weeds a little bit with academics about exploration, or at least talk about exploration with people who would go to that, that deeper level. But at the same time, I wanted it to have a more popular format, so something where, let's say, it was a bit shorter and where some of the intro material that you often hear on the New Books Network would be shortened so that we could dive into some of the deeper stuff more quickly. You mentioned something there about surrendering expertise, let's say. So kind of the balance of expertise between yourself and your guest, being someone whose job it is to ask the right questions rather than to be the expert in the scenario, and also wanting to strike a balance between Mm. doing a deeper dive like New Books Network, but wanting something that reaches a more broader audience and and sets a more general tone. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about that experience of surrendering expertise or negotiating expertise? Because I think in academia, there's often pressure to 
perform being the expert. And I know that's some pressure yeah. that a lot of graduate students feel that they have to have all of the answers in a particular situation. So uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, you're right. It, it is. It's a very different hat to wear the, to be the expert and to then be the interviewer. And I don't exactly know. I, I will say this. Uh, it's, it's not hard to wear the hat of the interviewer and to just ask people to, um, let's say, to tell the story themselves without wading into it too much. I will say this. When I do ask questions, my questions can be really long and rambling. And I, in, in the editing process, I will often edit myself out quite a bit because I feel like I just go on too long. So I do have those academic tendencies to not be able to ask a question in less than four minutes. You know, that's a problem. <laughs> But for most of the time, I feel like the interview sounds a lot better if I'm not the one who's setting up all the frameworks, but allowing my guests to, do, to set up those frameworks as much as they can. And so I will steer at times if I feel that there's information that the audience needs that maybe they're not getting. But I do try to let the guest uh, say most of those things for him or herself. The only time it gets hard is when it's work that I know very well. Mm. So sometimes, for example, when I'm interviewing people like Russell Potter or I just had David Woodman on to talk about the Franklin Expedition, and those are subjects that, I, you know, because of my first book, I know a lot about them. I don't know them certainly the way that th those guys know them, but I do know a lot about the context. But I have to ask context questions. So I have to ask them questions about material I know very well because it's not for me, it's for, for the listener. So sometimes that, that feels a little weird to ask you know, someone like, so what was the Franklin Expedition about? But for the most part, I actually really enjoy not having to be the expert. And all I need to do is I need to listen. The better I can listen, the better the interview is going to be. Because I would say the big challenge in being a host rather than being an expert is as the host, you kind of have to be the one aware of how much time the person is speaking about an issue or listen carefully enough that if they say something that you, f that you ask a follow-up question, but at the same time, you're thinking about the next questions you want to listen to get to. So it can be sometimes hard to listen with two ears, you know, uh, to, to what the, to what the guest is saying. But for the most part, I really enjoy it. There's something that you touched on there. I, I think that point about asking the contextual questions is quite interesting because podcasts are a form that is meant to have a kind of broad appeal and broad access too, which I think is very is something very important and maybe we can talk about later that the kind of accessibility of audio-based media. But but I was curious about that because since you're creating a podcast that is intended for a general audience, how do you think about setting a kind of tone and determining who that audience is? Because you mentioned asking contextual questions mm -hmm. for audience members who might not have ever heard of the Franklin Expedition, let's say. But how do you, how do you determine yeah. how broad to go with that contextual material? Do you have to make assumptions about your listeners? Are they ed highly educated lay people? Are they people coming in with no scientific background or having never been exposed to academic history. How do you think about that? So I don't know exactly who my audience is. I only know from the feedback I get from people. And as that self-selected group, I probably shouldn't, you know, make too many generalizations. But the impression I get from feedback is that it's a mixed group so that there are academics in, let's say, like you and me, who are historians of travel and encounter and exploration, as well as academics from other fields who may just have an interest in it. And then finally, there are people who are not academics at all, but are just interested in travel and exploration. I think all three of those groups exist for my listenership for Time to Eat the Dogs. And as a result of that, I, when I'm thinking about the show, I will always try to ask at least about five or 10 questions of essentially very basic informational 
questions. Of, so I will ask the author or the explorer or whoever I'm talking to, the guest, to really tell us the basic kind of context questions about what they did or, or what's, what's of importance. And then in the second half of the show, I'll dive a little deeper into more analytical or personal questions that get at some, some issue. And I, I don't know if this works, but the goal in that is that I'm creating or I'm helping the guest create a kind of a shared knowledge base so that somebody who's a general listener will have a, at least a sense of what the subject is, as well as the expert who already, already knows and then in the second half of the show, then the kind of the analytical or wonky questions will maintain an interest among, let's say, the academics who like that sort of stuff and hopefully give enough already that the general listener will, will stay on board as well. Building off of that, there's something that I want to go back to that you mentioned earlier from when you were talking about your blogging days, which was citation, which I think is a really interesting question uh, when we think about doing history in different formats other than a traditional academic article, a peer-reviewed article, or a monograph. How do we think about things like citation or appendices or uh, references to the archive? There's a robust conversation happening in scholarship about the kinds of citation and the kinds of archives we use, how those generate different kinds of work. But how do we think about citation in the context of an audio-based format? Or how do we think about the archives and connecting listeners back to those primary sources? Is that something that, that comes up at all in your podcasting or something that you've thought about? So what I try to do is both in the intros as well as in the, um, the audio intro as well as in the blog post that I have on the website that there are, there's source material for links, as well as if in the conversation with a guest, certain materials are mentioned. I also, like uh, by name, I also try to add links as well so that people can access that information. Those are the formal things that I do. Informally, I, I will, I'll just say as a, both as a presenter and as a podcaster, I try to reference the work of other sources where I hear it. So for example, usually in the course of a show, because we've covered so many different topics now, the subject that we're talking about with a guest overlaps with subjects that we've talked about in other episodes. And so I actually try to make links to other guests, both to acknowledge their work, but also to try to give the sense that this is part of a conversation that's taking place over a series of episodes by different authors in the same field. So that's what I kind of do informally. That's, that's really interesting to hear. I guess a somewhat related question would be, what kinds of conversations do you think podcasting allows for, both in terms of the actual one-on-one -on -one conversation with your guest, but then in terms of the larger scholarly conversation? And a reverse of that would be, what kinds of limits do you think there are in podcasting? And that's not to say that limits where a more traditional academic format would succeed. But what do you see as the sort of the boundaries of the academic conversation happening within a podcast? Huh, that's really a great question. So I think that the advantage of podcasting, and I think it's a really a big advantage, is that it, it's a medium that's increasingly popular. Uh, we know that just from the numbers that a larger and larger larger percentage of audiences are listening to podcasts. And as a medium, people are listening to them for significantly longer periods of time than, for example, the amount of time people will spend on a YouTube video. Mm. So the average rate, I believe, of somebody watching a general YouTube video, you'll see a drop off of 50% of the audience within the first two minutes. Of course, there are you know episodes, I'm sure, where people hang in there, but overall, that's the average. People are very impatient watching video, whereas for podcasts, the amount of time that someone will take to listen to a podcast are very, very high. Listener retention is extremely high. I know this from just as a general sense, but also podcast analytics, some of the podcast hosts that I podcast through, like iTunes have pretty robust analytics. So you can tell, for example, what percentage of a podcast people are listening to. 
And overall, I would say the average for time to eat the dogs is well above 80%. So anywhere from 80 to 100%, or sometimes more than 100%, wow. which is a strange <laughs> statistic, but will be listening. I think that what that signifies, by the way, is that someone will have listened to the episode and then there's some piece of it that they didn't hear or they want to hear again, so they'll actually re-listen to it. But it's quite common to see anywhere from 80 to maybe 105% in terms of listener retention. And the reason why I think that's, I mean, of course, I'm thrilled that people are hanging in there for so long for episodes. But the bigger point here is that I feel like for a lot of the people I interview, whether it's anthropologists or ocean scientists or historians, that they have complicated stories that they want to tell. And in fact, that's kind of a the job of the show is to show that, you know, travel, history, exploration, and encounter are complicated issues. Let's talk about them in a deeper way. And if people are waiting around for 30 minutes and they're hanging in there for that period of time, people can actually deploy fairly complicated arguments and people seem to be listening. I think part of that is also the way people listen to podcasts. You know, if you're watching a video, the video demands that basically your eyes and your ears are fixed on the same subject and that you're sitting in, you know, probably sitting in a seat somewhere. And I think that's actually a lot to ask of people. Whereas for podcasting, people are out running or they're, you know, on their exercise bike or they're making dinner or they're driving somewhere. And so in a way, they're not all of their attention is on the podcast. They're usually multitasking, but for that reason, they're they're willing to hang in there a little longer. Anyway, the broader point is just that I think that podcasting is an excellent medium for scholarship. I think it's a terrific way to deploy ideas for people who don't have the time or they don't have the attention for other kind of classic media. Oh, and so you were asking this issue of its limitations. So I'll, I'll take this from the point of view of a listener. If I'm listening to uh, somebody give, uh, giving, let's say, an author interview, and it's an hour long, and I've listened to it uh, in the car, and now I want to go back, and I want to find that part where they're talking about X, God, it's hard to find. There's no index. There's no text search. So it can be difficult to access that. You can't like pull it up on a Google search either. Um, so I find that kind of accessing particular pieces of information after the fact are more difficult in audio unless you have someone creating a transcript for the show. I also think that there are limitations just in terms of time. So, you know, if you've got somebody who spent eight years on a book and you're going to give them 35 minutes to explain it, then obviously they're only going to be able to tell you so much and go so deep in terms of the context and the citations. So I think those are kind of some natural limits of, of podcasting. I'm curious about one thing that you mentioned earlier, which is the option of, or I should say, the potential for building new collaborations or building new relationships between colleagues through the blog and then through podcasting. Because since you have a podcast, you have the opportunity to cold email or cold call people whose work you admire or people whose work you're interested in. Mm and invite them to participate yeah. uh, without needing any kind of introduction. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I think social media and the internet in general have changed the ways that we build scholarly communities, if, if that seems accurate. And I'm, I'm curious about the role of being a podcast host in there. Yeah, so you mentioned this. This is like, for me, one of the greatest things about be, uh, of having a podcast uh, where I get to choose the guests is... I get to choose the guests. So any subject that I'm interested in, I can, you know, send an email and it's not that everybody can, will say yes to it, but most people do. And so if there's work that I find interesting, it's this great excuse to, you know, email a stranger and not think that I'm stalking them or that I'm crazy. And then they'll talk to me about their work. So I love that part of the show and I love to, you know, meet people that way too. And I think so, you know, I should just tell you a little bit about my work. You know, my bread and butter is not research because I'm at a, essentially at a teaching college at the University of Hartford. So most of my students are 18 and 19 years old. They don't have graduate students. And I think a lot of people find when they leave graduate school or maybe leave their postdocs and take a more permanent position, 
whatever that permanent position is, whether it's in a museum or in a faculty job or somewhere else in an archive, that it's difficult to maintain that level of connectedness to the material and to our scholarly networks as we had when we were in graduate school. And so for me, as someone whose bread and butter is really teaching, one of the things I was finding was this is a great way to, to kind of refresh my knowledge of the field because I'm really engaging with a new piece of work every week. And so it's almost like doing an extended and infinite you know, prelims, right. PhDs, constantly trying to stay right, current. But then no one quizzes you on it, which is great. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. No one quizzes and It's me interesting on. that you brought up teaching because something I was curious about, obviously not having done the amount of teaching that you have over the course of your career, but as a teaching assistant for several semesters, I've seen more and more professors assign podcasts on particular topics, put them on their syllabi. I think sometimes it's a recognition that undergraduates are are busy and there's a hope that they have the attention span for a podcast where they might not have one for a 40-page academic article. But sometimes I think it's an attempt to engage the student with some kind of current event, something going on in the world today, and link it back to the historical yeah. content that they're learning in the classroom. So I'm just curious for your own students, have you... Uh, do you assign podcasts for them to listen to? Have you heard from any of your students who've listened to Time to Eat the Dogs? Have they have they given you any feedback on the podcast? Uh, so I have not uh, assigned episodes from Time to Eat the Dogs. I feel it's just too, I don't know, I just feel like it's, yeah, I just, I feel uncomfortable doing that. It's like right. assigning my own book, you know, I, I can't, I can't do that. Um so I haven't, but when, but there are, as you, as you can imagine, uh, many points in which the subject that I'm talking about in class overlaps with material that I've talked about with guests. And so I'm totally happy in the um, course of a lecture or lecture and answer where we're talking about a subject or even talking about a particular scholar to say, by the way, if you want to know more about this person, here's a link, and then I'll usually show them online where they can find uh, the episode. And so students do get back to me about that because some of them do listen and, and um, will get back to me or they'll get back to the guest about it. So that's, you know, hugely satisfying. And in fact, I, you know, I probably should do more with podcasting in the classroom, both as a, some, as a resource for students to listen to, as well as a project, because I know that there are people who are assigning podcast projects to their students. And I think that's very cool as well. So that's probably the next step. So we've talked about students a little bit. What's been the response from your academic colleagues to Time to Eat the Dogs? Have you gotten positive feedback? Have you gotten any pushback from people who favor more traditional academic formats? Has there been, have there been people who have consulted you who want to start their own podcasts and are looking for guidance? What's, what's been the feedback from that community? So I would say overall, feedback's always been very positive. There's there's not been a lot of pushback from my, certainly not from my university. I, I'd say that because I'm teaching in Hillier College, which is really kind of devoted to undergraduate teaching, nobody really sees it as something that, you know, is detrimental, let's say, to the work that I do at the school. And so my dean and my chair have always been very positive in promoting it and happy that I'm doing it. That said, there's very little institutional support for this sort of thing, you know, so it's, it is a commitment of time. I probably spend about 10 hours, I'd say, per episode when it comes to, you know, finding guests, reading their work uh, or learning about their work, doing the interview, and then actually most of the work is in the editing process, putting it together at the end. So there's not a lot of institutional support. It's basically pro bono work still. But in terms of the feedback I get from my colleagues, it's very positive. In fact, I've tried to, to actually profile the work of, of my colleagues whose work you know, kind of intersects with exploration or travel. And then in the wider history of science community and exploration community, people are immensely happy and grateful, actually. I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting to me in doing this is that I think we have a sense sometimes when we look at the books being published 
that the world is just filled with these incredibly successful authors who you know are invited to all of these things and they're they're being reviewed in all of these works you know in all of these journals and that this their life must be great but in truth most most authors are looking to get the word out about their books there's just so many different types of media that occupy our attention that it's very difficult to get noticed and i think one of the things I get more than anything else is people are really, really happy for a forum to talk about their work where they can develop ideas for more than two or three minutes at a time. So that's been great for me. And sometimes I'll hear back. And this, this actually is another reason why on the show I try to profile the work of senior people, you know, from filmmakers or astronauts or senior professors uh, to people who are more junior or, or even in grad school, for example, working on their PhD. And I think that it's especially important for people in the early parts of their career to get a kind of platform to talk about their work. And the degree to which I can help in that, I, I'm super happy about. And I really enjoy actually talking to people whose ideas are, you know, are in the making kind of builds pretty neatly into a question that I wanted to ask about judging success for the podcast, whether that's something you think about, what are the metrics by which you think about the success of the podcast? Because for a more traditional academic format, we think about citation and recitation, or we think about work being assigned on syllabi. As you said, people getting books out there, mm. getting invited to talk at, at particular events or to talk as part of specific series on other campuses. But in terms of podcasting, there's, I imagine there's a whole different set of metrics, some of which you've already talked about in terms of the feedback from students or the feedback from colleagues. Are there other things that you, you think about in terms of thinking about what makes a successful episode or whether Time to Eat the Dogs has, has been successful in your opinion? Yeah, that's been a question that I've had a hard time answering with some people because I, you know, I think that like so many academics, um, I came to this position after a lot of years in graduate school, and as as you know, it can be a pretty terrifying environment. I think it's even more terrifying actually for for the scholars that are coming up through now, just because the job market is so tight, and so we're all so concerned about not only doing our work, but doing our work in a way that will be respected by people in the field. And that might, that we can actually hopefully leverage that work to find some kind of professional success. So, so much of my academic career has been concerned with those very issues. I think that was the issue that drove, I mean, of course, there's a base interest in history and exploration. I don't think any of us would get into right. this field if it, was, if it was just for the money or the fame, right? But but I think that we quickly, all of us as graduate students, become nervous about how we're going to survive in this world, this professional world. And so for so many years, I was concerned with that. And I think having an, an academic job and having published a book that got me tenure gave me some freedom to think about, um, so what, what do I want to do? And this podcast, people will actually ask me, so what, what, where does this lead? And I think that's the hardest question for me to answer because actually I have no answer to the question, where does this podcast lead? The podcast is the thing in and of, in and of itself. It's actually the thing I like to do. So it doesn't have any kind of ultimate object which has been actually quite liberating for me in a lot of ways. I'm going to do the podcast as long as I have the time to do it well and the interest to do it. And, and for right now, I, I have both. So at, at that kind of personal benchmark, it's a success. I, I enjoy doing it. There are other benchmarks that podcasters use, as you said, that in the academic world we have, you know, we connect our work to, let's say, how how big is a academic journal or how difficult it is to publish in this journal and all of the metrics that are attached to that for podcasting. The biggest metric is listenership. And that's the metric that commercial podcasters use. How many people are downloading the episodes over, 
usually I think the metric is over a six-week period of time when most of the downloads happen. Of course, I have enough ego involved. I do want to have listeners, and I want to see the listenership go up. And it has been going up, you know, since the beginning, and that makes me happy. I'm happy. I'm happy that more people are listening to it, and happy that actually I could have commercial advertisers if I wanted to. But I don't think I will, just because I really enjoy the format being what it is, and um, it being a kind of, I guess, a kind of labor of love. You know, there's one thing if I, I know I'm answering, it's taking me a long time to answer this question, but I was talking to a uh, friend of mine who's a novelist and she's she's done really, really well. And she just got a big contract with Norton for her next novel. And she was telling me how she had her first publicity meeting in New York and that this was very exciting for her because she's worked so long on this novel and that they were going to bring it out and uh, it was going to be a big deal, but that she found that in the publicity department, in fact, they really weren't interested in her book at all. They were interested in her personal story and how they might be able to market that personal story to bring her book to a broader audience. And she said it was a little bit dispiriting that the metric that they were using was so much based upon how many you know, copies of the book they could sell rather than on whether the book was any good. And she said, you know, I realized that for me, you know, the writing of a novel is a creative process and that the people that I'm interacting with professionally are not the creatives. They're the administrative part that are really interested in the commercial aspect of it. And I was thinking about that in the context of podcasting. The beauty of this podcast is I get to talk to all the creatives. I talk to people about their work and we live inside the world of their work and how that work touches the world or touches other people. But I get to live in that place and that's like a really awesome place to live. I love talking to people about the things that inspire them and that they spend their time time doing. So that also for me feels very kind of fulfilling and, and like it's a kind that's of measure great. of success. That's great. We've touched on this in different ways so far, but not just with Time to Eat the Dogs, but with the sort of bigger podcast ecosystem. What have you seen over the last couple of years since you launched your own podcast in the ways in which the, the world of podcasting has changed, the way that people are interacting with podcasts or, or starting to think of them as a form of media, and also what you see as the place of academic or maybe even more specifically history podcasts? inside that podcast ecosystem or do they continue are they continuing to grow do you think there's a maybe the field is getting quite crowded or do you have any observations about where podcasting has gone over the last couple of years and where you think it might go so podcasting we know that podcast listenership is going up and up i can't remember now i think it's almost half of americans have listened to a podcast in the last year and some uh, something like 20 to 30% are weekly or uh, weekly listeners to podcasts. So the numbers are going up. But at the same time, as you mentioned, the number of new podcasts is going up. And it's getting to a point now where it's quite difficult to keep track of what's being offered. And in fact, the the life of most podcasts is quite short. I think the average number of podcasts episodes that somebody will run in a podcast before it closes something like 12 episodes because it takes a lot of time and the podcast uh, epi podcast episodes are also very dependent upon format so i think that sometimes when people say you know i love podcasts i can do a podcast let me do a podcast a couple of things that people need to think about and sometimes haven't really thought out before they start is who's the audience for the podcast? Who's actually going to listen to it? And then how much time is it going to take for me to develop this podcast and can it be sustained? Uh, one of the things that I took a lot of time to think about was the format of the, po of the podcast I wanted because I realized that there are, there are actually some great history podcasts. I'm thinking about uh, Lady Science. Uh, there's another one called Dig. Oh, God, there's so many. There's ben Franklin's World is a podcast. These are great history podcasts that I listen to. But I also feel that the amount of time it would take to do some of these shows, I just can't do it as a, as a one-man band. For example, shows that have essentially run from a narrative script. 
someone has to write that script. It's almost like you would have to spend hours and hours writing it before you actually broadcast it. An interview show, I don't have to do that. I, I, I allow the guest to basically be the person who's writing the script for me. There are other shows that are roundtable format, which is great if you can make sure that you have people available to do a roundtable every time you want to do a podcast. But if you don't, then it can be it can be difficult to run. So format's really important. In terms of the where do I think podcasts are going, and in particular where they're going for, let's say, history or history of science, I would say that despite the massive proliferation of podcasts and even the proliferation of academic podcasts, I think there really still is a space for the history of science and podcasting. I feel that so many of the podcasts that are out there, like uh, Lady Science, like my podcast, like some of the others, like New Books Network, are taking uh, a piece of the history of science in their work, but they're not looking at it more globally, or they're not looking at it from, uh, let's say, particular lenses. I think there's a lot of room still left to do um, in the history, specifically the history of science, where uh, there's, there's room for really good podcasts. And in terms of the, you know, how, how do we, I guess, evaluate it or, you know, um, how do we find listeners for it? I, I do think that commercial pro- podcasting does have something to offer us, which is that when, when you do a podcast, you should really be uh, working with your guests to try to promote your podcast. So, you know, I don't have an advertising budget. The only advertising I do is through Twitter and Facebook as well as I try to get my guests to promote the interview among their networks as well. But when you have a guest on a a new guest every week, that's a lot of networks that you're connecting to. And that builds over time, that really can build audience. So, so I think that it's still in this saturated age of podcasts, very possible to develop your own podcast idea. If you can find an audience that you think will work and a format that you can support, and then leverage the social uh, networks of your guests to help you build that audience. I do want to end with one question in a format that will be familiar to uh, listeners who have ever been to an academic conference, which is that I'm going to ask a totally self-serving question for, for my guest, uh, something relating to my own work, <laughs> uh, which is that because I'm also someone who works on the history of exploration, yeah. I'm wondering if there's something about exploration history specifically that lends itself well to podcasting. And I'm thinking of work by people like Felix Driver, for example, who have written about the ways in which exploration was hugely Mm. popular, or even even your first book, uh, Coldest Crucible, thinking about the ways in which when these heroic expeditions of the 19th and early 20th century were going on, they were hugely, hugely popular. People followed them every day in major newspapers. When the if if the explorers came back alive, uh, not when, but if if they came back alive, they um, they did a lecture circuit yeah. and were talked in front of sold out audiences. They wrote books. They endorsed products. Appeared in advertising. They were huge celebrities, and a lot of that had to do with the the adventurousness of the expedition narrative. Now. A lot of the scholarship has focused recently on unpacking those heroic expedition narratives and showing the ways in which they're much more complicated than they were presented to the public. Uh, but the the adventure narrative is a huge part of the appeal of exploration, and maybe in some ways a huge part of the appeal of for scholars who are studying yeah. it. So I'm wondering if there is something about this particular area that lends itself well to something like a podcast. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I I think you're right. The kind of I, I think there is within explore history of exploration a kind of built-in storyline which is you know very very popular and exciting to a lot of different audiences. And certainly as a kid, I was very plugged into stories of you know extreme adventure. And so so I think that 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 interest is very broad. And then, as you were saying, you know, our, our academic interests in exploration are different. You know, they may include issues of drama, but they also include things like issues of encounter and native peoples and the people who are written out of expedition narratives. So I think all that's important. And I think that the, I think that the trick 
And the trick is, can you appeal to both audiences? Can you build something that, let's say, draws in the listener or the reader to a story that is for them an escape, an escape, an extreme adventure? And in the process, bring them to a place that maybe they didn't think they were going to go. Like, oh, there are Native people in these stories. Oh, I didn't know that, you know, Elisha Kane was helped so much by the Inuit uh, in surviving the, the winter. So that that, I think, is the, the trick. You might even, you know, maybe cynically, the bait and switch. Uh, is there a way that we can talk to both audiences and give them something maybe expand the conversation about it. And and yeah, I, I don't I don't know if it always works. I do get some I do get some critical feedback on my show and usually when I do it's from people who are uh let's say they are they're really into exploration as a, as an adventure story or they're in the space industry, for example, and they don't know why I'm so spending so much time talking about race and gender. And so they feel that there's a political tilt to the show. And I think that they must mean by that, not even that I'm giving a particular political tilt, but just the fact that I'm talking about race and gender with my guests is somehow, somehow identifies it politically. And, you know, I don't, I don't feel I can do anything about that in a way, because like you, I think we're interested in, let's say, some of the deeper questions of exploration beyond motivational speaking or, you know, why this is uh, why exploration is just an amazing thing but but getting at some of the deeper stuff and so you're never going to get everybody but i do i do feel i i like to hope at least that you can bring you can bring some of those audiences together you know that maybe came to it for for different reasons michael robinson thank you so much for chatting with me today oh it's my great pleasure thank you so much for asking me sarah